hello friends. This is an Apple Music interview version of the world-famous Emo Dad podcast. What does this mean? No music. Why? Apple doesn't let us play songs. Does it sound a bit weird when we introduce a song and nothing happens? Nah. But, you know, you still get the conversation and all the good times. For the full version, switch on over to Spotify and search Emo Dad. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Right, we have to act professional now. Hey, there he is. Oh, fellas. Oh, mate, you look so fucking badass. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> In your big chair. <laughs> my big chair. I got a bad back, so I have to have one of those chairs that helps my back. Uh, okay. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. I was going to ask if you wanted me to record this using a microphone and send you the audio, or just are you going to use the onboard? The audio that you capture we tend just to use the zoom okay um and you you're sounding good so all right. thank you but i think i think you're right you can just relax in your massive chair <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that big is it Hello, friends. We're back with another special interview with a good old mate of ours. My name's James. My name's Matt. And this is Hold On Tight by Greg Holden. Um, Greg Holden, welcome to the Emo Dad podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Are we, are we allowed to talk about the fact that you and Matt know each other? Or is that yeah. not a thing? Yeah, not a yeah thing. of course. <laughs> yeah, top am I allowed secret. to? Yeah, okay, good, good. <laughs> In the world's I... best kept secret. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, good. I just wanted to throw that in, in case, like, in case we got a bit of, um, what do you call it? Like, we needed to, you got, yeah, I just wanted to make sure the listeners knew that was a real yeah. thing. Um, how do you guys know each other? We know each other through friends. Yeah. In, in, in Guildford, really. Like, just a couple of my friends from, um, a couple of old roommates actually in Brighton. I used to live in Brighton. Uh, I was in a band down there, and uh, you just saw you know Tristan and Mike and stuff, right? That's basically yeah, it. yeah, and uh, yeah. Al Moon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So. Oh yeah, it's mostly through Al and Fran, isn't it? That's it. And so that's they right. um, Fran drummed for you at one point, yeah. didn't he? Um, yeah. And yeah, we used to come and every time you played the Rhythm Factory, it seemed to be every. Always, oh, yeah. uh, we would come along. <laughs> but we'll, well, I guess we'll get onto that in a bit. But um, yeah, but yeah, it's, oh, been a, it's been a few years now. Yeah, we we've known each other for a long time. We never really had like the sit down like one on ones with each other, but we've known each other for a long time. Oh, well, here we are. Yeah, here we go. I tend to these days just record all my conversations with friends. Perfect. <laughs> I don't see friends anymore. I moved a th- I moved thousands of miles away from all my friends, so I. I I live in the woods now with no one around. <laughs> that sounds perfect to me. Yeah, no, that would absolutely terrify me, but I'm sure we can get onto that, yeah. that later. Um, so I'll bring it back, bring it back, James. 
So let's um, come to the our traditional first question, uh, which is what is your earliest memory of music? Good music or music? Uh, you can take it any way you like. God, my earliest memory of music, unfortunately, is my mum picking me up from school in her Ford Escort XR3i convertible. Amazing. <laughs> Recently divorced, blasting uh, Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Full volume. Uh, that's that's probably the first time I was like traumatized by music. <laughs> so, <laughs> took me a long time to get over it. Yeah, yeah. It's probably my first real memory of music. I would say I was probably like you know seven or eight years old. I mean, I mean, I knew I, I know I'd heard it long times before, a lot before that, but I guess that's the first memory. And then. Were you, so you are a similar age to me and Matt, so were you kind of aware those kind of a big 80s hits, kind of like Michael Jackson, Madonna, all that kind of stuff, was yeah. that a big part of your childhood? I mean, it was on in, in the background, you know, TV okay. and stuff. But my parents, I mean, they liked music. They weren't, I don't really recall them being big, huge music fans necessarily. Um, okay. And nor was I for a long time. It took me a long time to sort of develop my own musical taste and, um, you know, enjoy music on my own. Through my own choices, I mean, I got my mum, I think my mum would always get me the now, that's what I call music compilations for Christmas. And that was really all my, uh, the extent of my musical uh, enthusiasm for most of my childhood. Do you remember what kind of like the first band or music you felt like was yours or really spoke to you? Yeah. Probably Green Day. Nice. Green Day or Slipknot, believe it or not. Um, right. In the early days when I was a, a, a young teenager, I, I, I was more into dance music only because that's what all my friends were listening to. Okay. So I listened to like happy hardcore and, 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 just whatever the, was on in the pub when I, I was a glass collector in a pub in my hometown and you know the, we'd have a Friday and Saturday night there'd be a DJ and he'd be playing all this sort of you know club music and that was really again it was only because it was what I, what was around and what was being played it wasn't because I was choosing to to be into that stuff I still mm -hmm. hadn't quite figured out that I liked music properly yet it was only when I first heard a Green Day song that I was like oh shit what's this um and then, and then somehow I fell into a Slipknot, the first Slipknot record, and was like, "Oh fuck, what is this?" <laughs> yeah. And and then it sort of uh, turned me on to that, so sort of, you know, rock music essentially. Um, and then it sort of went on from there. And that, but that was the first time I remember thinking like, "Oh, I get it now. I get why people really into music." It just it took me a long time. It, I mean, I was probably sixteen, seventeen before I really even started to really like music in in the in an independent kind of way. Yeah, I think that's certainly from talking to my other friends, I think that's more actually more normal than people realize. Yeah. Like it like it coming a bit later. Um did you were you when did you kind of first start picking up an instrument? Was it before then or was it around the No, it was like, after, it was after that. It was okay. after that. Yeah. I mean I I found a bunch of different genres of music. No, not genres, but you know in in a period of being six, 16 years old, in that one year, I sort of got into Green Day, got into Slipknot, and got into Bob Dylan all at the same time. It was like a very, very sort of large 
what's the word? I don't know what word I'm looking for right now. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm trying to say? It was it was just a, a lot of different styles of music, but all equally powerful and all all equally influential. So it was like it was this transformational year where I realized how powerful music was. Mm-hmm. So I was I love Slipknot because I love the heaviness of it, and I'm still a big metal fan. Like I love the heavier and the more aggressive the music is, the more passionate it feels to me. I still love that shit. Um, I loved metal for that and i loved the bob dylan side of it the singer songwriter old time like you know 60s sing songwriter because of the power of the lyric uh-huh. and then i just and then i loved green day for the melodies so i found like this sort of triangle of perfection <laughs> it was like <laughs> aggression uh, the lyrical content and melodies uh so of all i've never even looked at it like that this is i'm having a revelation right in this very moment um, i've never looked at it like that but they they sort of formed this perfect vision of what i thought music could be amazing and that makes that makes perfect sense i think yeah listening and thinking back to your your music you can definitely see some of those some of that construction those influences coming through for sure right um we um because this is emo dad podcast we spotted you have an emo playlist on the spotify oh yeah or it's connected to your account which is like got some absolute bangers in it <laughs> where, <laughs> where did where did that come about I, I still i mean i listen to emo all all the fucking time man okay i'm allowed to swear on this podcast right absolutely yeah fuck yeah yeah um i i mean i still love that stuff and i think there's a period where i stopped listening to it and then maybe a few years ago, I remembered that emo was such a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, my partner's into the same kind of music too. So we uh, we completely gel on that. And so just go back down those trips down memory lane, listening to Take Back Sunday and Get Up Kids. I actually went to see Get Up Kids recently in Portland. Uh, did now. you? Yeah, it was fucking awesome. <laughs> we, were in the, we were in the mosh pit in the front, just, all, just a bunch of like bald dads <laughs> it was so funny it was it was just a classic uh well now whenever you go see those bands it's just a bunch of guys in their 40s yeah all singing along we yeah. uh we we interviewed matt Pryor for this very podcast did you really yeah we did see we're, we're not awesome. we're no jokers mate no i, I mean <laughs> look i wouldn't be here if i didn't think you guys are taking this very seriously <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. awesome that's awesome i actually wrote him on instagram after that show hoping that uh we could find some mutual ground and you know i'm not no one on instagram so i was like maybe he'll write me back but he never did the fucker oh mate <laughs> it took um, us a while to get hold of him to be fair good. <laughs> yeah yeah it wasn't yeah it wasn't easy but matt is um, extremely persistent when fishing for his heroes <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, he's a he, it was a great show it was it was fantastic um so your f- wikipedia good old oh. wikipedia that's how we do our research uh yeah. tells us that you... on wikipedia. yeah exactly <clears throat> yeah, exactly which is why we always ask these questions with like a question mark in the question yeah um, the problem with wikipedia is sometimes it's it's true-ish yeah like there's never like bullshit on there but it's usually something you said in an interview that, that has been misquoted but just happened to find itself on there and blah blah anyway sorry i totally interrupted you carry on 
No, that's that's absolutely um, very relevant for probably the rest of the interview. Okay. <laughs> so, this whole interview is based solely off uh, my Wikipedia page. And yes, no, yes, no, <laughs> yes, no. There's interviews, there's other things, there's thoughts, there's stuff. We've uh, we've done, yeah, 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 bit, bits and bobs. Um, but you, um, as we were talking about earlier, you. Um, is it right that you moved to Brighton with your first band, or it did is. form? Oh, it is. Oh, amazing. That is correct. That is a correct statement. So, how did you get? How did your first band form? Uh, we were both from, but we were a two-piece rock band. Uh, a drummer and a guitar. I was a dr- I was a guitar player and a singer, and, and then we had, a, and then it was a drummer, and my buddy Pat, and uh, we both lived in Leyland, where we grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And we both came from other bands. I, I, I'd been in a metal band from Manchester and um, Pat was in a, I think like kind of a ska band from Leyland and they, both those bands uh, broke up and I was looking to start my own thing because I'm a control freak and can't be in a band. Um, <laughs> so I uh, put a, put a, just put like an advert out in the local practice rooms for a drummer um, and Pat answered and we start, we start, we formed this band and it was sort of emo experimental it was cool. I liked it. We had weird time signatures and we were fucking around a little bit, but there were still melodies and songs there because it's me and I, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, we, we got some attention. We won a battle of the bands in, in, in Leyland. And, and uh, after about a year of being a band in Leyland, we realized that that wasn't, you know, Leyland's not exactly the capital of music. And uh, Pat was actually going down to a music school in Brighton uh, that summer anyway. So I was left with a choice. I was like, well, I had to move to Brighton with him and carry on this band or I stay in Leyland, which I'm not, I don't want to do that either. So right. uh, we moved together to, to Brighton and he went to school there, um, to music school and I just got a job and did whatever. Uh, and yeah, we, we plugged away at that for a year or so. We were in and out of London playing gigs and had label interests and stuff like that. But yeah. That's a, I don't want to go too far ahead of the story, but yeah. Um, it, the, the statement on it, Wikipedia is correct. <laughs> a tick there. That's my long-winded way of saying yes. <laughs> okay. I think I learned about interviews is you don't say yes or no. Uh, yeah, yes okay. or no answers. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's, that's it. I would agree. Um, yeah, amazing. Thank you. Um, so if we could, if we could press you to choose one song to kind of sum up what you were kind of into around that time, what would spring to mind? that time probably fuck i don't know man um that band evolved very quickly from like an emo band to an indie band like with mm-hmm. I, I was into like the early november and and uh brand new when i was starting that band and then by the time i was finished i was probably listening to more like kooks you know and, okay. uh, and like all right uh, it's more like Britpop, I guess. So the, the band definitely evolved over the couple of years that we were a band. So I, I don't really know. Like, I was really going to say a song right now off the top of my head. There's a song by Morning Runner that I've, I okay. recently refound. Let me see if I can find what song it is. Because it was a song that I just I have a very vivid memory of walking through Brighton, listening to this song and being like, this is, this is the emotion that I'm trying to get out of my songs. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Not the coolest band by any means, but um, you know, 
No, it's good. I'm just rereading them. a song them. called yeah. Burning Benches. Uh, perfect. All right. Well, um, and and and, been... uh, and and I just I, I'm not saying that that's the answer to the question, I guess, but like that. Whenever I think about that period, I remember walking around Brighton listening to that song. So I'll, I'll, I'll just let that be my answer. Perfect. I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know another single song from that band. So, <laughs> well, um, after we've played Burning Benches, um, listeners can do a deep dive into the 2003 right. four from Reading, he says. Yet another replica of Coldplay. I know. They is, what a terrible answer that was. Don't, don't, anyone who's listening to this, don't judge me and my life over this song. I don't know why I said this, but I'm sticking with my hands. Yeah, do it, man. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear this. This is uh, Burning Benches by Morning Runner. So I'm assuming post-band you then decided to go solo. Correct. With your own stuff. 2006, 2007, I decided that I wanted to do my own thing. So I quit the band that I was in. And did that and start, to- sorry, with the um, with the YouTube stuff? Because people that don't know, you were, you know, pretty successful through YouTube um, before YouTubers was even a thing. Um, yeah. How did, why, why and how did that come about? Uh, I always get this timeline mixed up a little bit, but basically what happened was when I quit my band, God, it's such a long story. I'll try and keep it short, but these details are kind of important, I guess, but uh, I quit my band and I moved to, oh, I was still living in Brighton, but I was still living with my drummer actually, but we weren't in the band anymore. And I started writing solo songs and I had a job in a pub in Brighton. Um, it was like a live music venue slash pub. Um, and I was working one night and, uh, we had a band that was coming through from America. Um, and everybody's like, whoa, a band from America. You know, it's like, <laughs> they were like a blues band from America. It, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a cool band and it wasn't a cool pub either. Um, but anyway, this band was coming through and I sort of knew uh, that that was a good thing, I guess. Um, and the guy who booked the shows at the venue was asked me if I wanted to open the show because he knew that I played and he'd seen me play a couple of times. And I only had like three or four songs at that point anyway. So anyway, American band comes through. I open the show. I meet them. They're really nice. Um, uh, I play my set after that show. The, the singer of the band or the guitar player, his name is Nunzio, um, came up to me. They from they were from New York, and I'm obs- I was obsessed with New York. So I just all I wanted to do was fucking chew his ear off about New York. And uh, he said, "Hey man, I love your music. Um, I have a studio in Brooklyn, and if you ever if you can get yourself to New York, I'll record you for free." Nice. Okay. And I was like what because that my biggest dream was to live in new york so um of course i i I didn't have any money so i think i i think i played a concert at that pub like a fundraising concert to raise money for my flight which i did and i ended up going and recording with this guy this is why i still lived in brighton and i recorded four songs in brooklyn it was a life-changing experience i got to be in brooklyn and record and it was my first time in new york and it was it was unfucking believable change completely changed my life I came home with these four songs and I put them online and released, you know, released them on iTunes or whatever. And at that same time was when I was doing, started doing YouTube videos. Hmm. I'm just recording. I did this thing called the living room series where I just recorded myself on my phone, super lo-fi, um, just songs that I'd written or songs that I'd written that day. Even sometimes I would post songs that I'd written that day. And 
gradually just get started getting a bit of a following and um and then yeah that sort of became my platform for a minute and then i moved to london uh which was then started getting more popular and i was able to sort of do shows living room shows based off the living room series on youtube and then concerts in real life start happening and i don't yeah it's kind of a, a confused a very confusing time i don't really totally remember it that that well but um, um so so you were doing youtube you were starting to tour a bit so then when did the um the debut album well i, I can tell you it was released in 2009 um so where on that that kind of timeline did this drop which out the word in edgeways one a word in edgeways yeah that was self-released that was a, i went for a second trip to new york to finish okay. that um so there was i think there was nine songs on that album um self-released that through itunes and um and basically promoted it only through my youtube channel um what was your question i actually forget what the question was that you've answered the question basically oh. where that kind of fitted within this whole time oh, yeah. so that was pre, um, that was pre me moving to new york post okay. me leaving Brighton. I, li I lived in london for about a year and a half yeah and uh, and I played shows there. I got, a, I think I did a residency there at Monkey, this place called Monkey Chews. Um, and, I, and I sort of started trying to build up a following there. And it was getting, it was pretty fun. You know, I, I did some, I did a couple of shows that were really busy and um, started getting a little bit of label interest. Um, executives were starting to show up at the shows and, 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 and I was just obsessed with the idea of moving to New York. I only moved to London so I could practice living in a big city before I inevitably nice. moved. I love that. And then after about a year and a half in New in London, I was just not happy with where I was at in my life. I had a, a job that I didn't like, and I just decided in 2009, early 2009, I was like, I don't know what the consequences for these actions are going to be, but I'm going to I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to sell everything I own. I'm going to move to New York City and see what happens. Follow the dream. And I did, and I never came home. And was that scary moving to New York? Not at on all. Your own? No, no, it wasn't scary at all. And it's, it's a big place, mate. Why. It would be scary now. <laughs> it, would be, it would be terrifying. But I think at the time, I, it's what I wanted. So it wasn't scary. It was exactly what I wanted. So it was actually very, very exciting. Nice. And with the the album "A Word in Edgeways," it's since uh, disappeared from. <laughs> spotify yeah i wondered why that why that was probably i'm embarrassed about it oh mate it's so good it, it, i don't know why i didn't put it on there i probably should just throw it up there it's just uh i don't know it's on itunes all right you can see you can get it, oh, is it? Oh, okay fine is it it should be i it, this i'm very good at sabotaging my career i i have been doing it for a long time <laughs> james james is our um fat fact checker i can see i can always tell when his eyes light up and the screen lights up he's checking um it's not on spotify i know that but i think it is on itunes or apple music there you go that's fine then um i i think it's great i love that album so much i think it's just like because it feels childish and, and amateur to me i think a little bit like you know i think everybody probably feels like that about their first album yep their first child yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is so, available on Apple Music. There we go. Exactly. All right, there you go. There we go. Um, so, so you're in New York. 
uh, and you released the Sing for the City EP. That so, if I got the timeline right, this is when you're you're in New York, you're living in New York, and that's when that EP comes out. Yeah, I wrote that. So I wrote that while I was living in New York, and then actually because of the nature of visas and immigration and stuff like that in America, funnily enough, I knew this going in. I knew that actually when I left London, I could only live legally in America for three months. And then I knew I would have to come home and figure out a visa situation. But I figured if I, if I went to New York for three months and I worked my ass off and I met as many people as I could and I played as many gigs as I could and just networked as much as I could, I would find a way to get a visa to come back, which inevitably ended up happening. But I, you know, I came home from the three months, my life was changed. I, I didn't want to ever live in England again. I was, I, but I had to, I had to, I was stuck. So I started touring a lot. Um, and that was the summer of 2009. Uh, I lived in New York in the spring and the winter of 2009. And yeah, I recorded it. I recorded Sing for the City in that period when I was stuck in England. I actually recorded that in England. Um, oh, okay. And then I put it out right when I got my visa, actually. I remember I got my visa in September 2009. And the first thing I did was go on tour with a girl called Ingrid Michelson. Um, on a tour bus around America, it was fucking unbelievable. And that's actually Amazing. what I ended up. That was what I used as leverage to get my visa was that tour that I'd been invited on because she saw me playing in New York when I was living there during my th my three months. So my plan worked perfectly. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, my, I ended up going on this amazing US tour, playing thousands of people and on a tour bus. It was a dream come true. And then, so that was when I released Sing for the City. I was selling that on that tour, actually. Okay, so we should uh, we should play a song from that EP. Have you got any favourites? Can you can you remember what's on it? <laughs> I, I actually can't. Let me I have to <laughs> sing. Or, you know, I still like look up my own lyrics and stuff online because I can't remember. Sing for the city. Um, oh God. Uh, I guess she's got something solely because oh wow look how many plays that one's had jesus um that's, that's, the, that's the least on there yeah it's the least isn't it that's how it usually works my favorite ones are the ones that are the least played and the yeah. ones that most are the ones i never want to hear again uh i don't know play whatever you want okay well let's go with that um yeah. this is she's got something from sing for the city by greg so this comes out in 2009 what was kind of like the musical landscape like for you or or like people that you were playing with or connecting with around that time it was very sing uh, it was very singer-songwriter focused yeah very delicate singer-songwriter focused and um it was a good time man it was actually a really good time we had this little venue in New York City called Rockwood Music Hall that's still there. It's bigger now, but it, at the time it was a little, little hole in the wall venue that just was very, rem it felt very reminiscent of the 60s, where I, the, the New York that I was chasing, where it was like there was a community, there was a scene of people there and everybody sort of congregated at this one venue. And I would go there every single night, whether or not I was playing and drink my face off. And it was in the middle of Manhattan. It was just such a it was such a great time in my life that I'm so nostalgic for. Um, like I, I really miss 
that period. It was so romantic. You know, I was just, I was alone in New York City, going to venues, getting drunk, playing music with friends. They would play shows. I would get on stage with them. I would play shows. They would get on stage with me. Everybody was just, it was like a, it was fucking awesome. Yeah. Fucking awesome. To answer your question, it was the greatest time of my life. <laughs> and, it, and it was very, it was very independent focus. Like everybody was doing it themselves. Everybody had a Kickstarter campaign going for their albums. Everybody was self-releasing. Nobody was signing a record deal. It was, it was a, it was cool. It was a cool time, man. Yeah, because that was just just like everything kind of blew up two thousand and seven, with all those kind of. Um, with a lot of the the medium-sized labels disappearing and all the kind of chaos with nobody, people trying to figure out how to make money out of music again. And it was a big time for, for let me just add one more thing, is mm. that it was a big time for singer-songwriters getting their music on TV shows. Okay. It was like the Grey's Anatomy time. It was the One Tree Hill time. It was when people were getting their music in the background of TV shows, which is what was paying everybody's bills. So the and so so the big artist at the time was the one who had the end credits of the new uh you know uh private practice episode or whatever. <laughs> and so that, that was kind of like or on commercials, on TV commercials and stuff. Like you, you could make decent money at that time um having something like that land. Yeah. And and it really, really at that time it translated to fans. It really people watched those shows and they were really interested in what music was in the background. So if you, if you had one of your songs in the back of an episode like that, it was big for your career. Interesting. Yeah. It doesn't really, people don't care anymore. It's not music's become a lot more of a commodity now, but I'm sure we'll get to that at some point, but it, um, it became, it was, it was such a huge thing for your career when you got something like that. It, it would be the difference between a sold out show and a not sold out show. Interesting. Yeah, because obviously we're kind of foreshadowing what happens for you, but was that a um, so that was an aim in the circle that you were in? Yeah, I think everybody wanted that because it was you know you don't you don't make a lot of money playing shows if no one shows up, right? So you know, and you could make you could make twenty grand uh, at that time. You, someone you know you could make twenty thirty grand by having um, one of your songs on one of those. If it, it was a big TV show, that's a yeah, that's half a. It's a lot of money for for singer songwriter. Yeah, for sure. That's um. That's yeah. a lot of money for anyone. Yeah, I mean, um, more two thousand nine. Yeah, that's probably was like I don't know. I was probably earning half that a year in pounds or something in two thousand nine. Yeah, I mean, like, so you got yeah. one or you got one or two of those. I mean, New York's an expensive city, so it's expensive to live there. But if you got one or two of those a year, you was you were doing all right, you know. And if you got, I had friends who were getting like one a fucking week. They were becoming millionaires off that shit you know wow. um i wasn't one of those people but they you know there was a few people in our scene who were writing music that was just perfect for my problem was my music was very lyrically focused on one topic it was very uh specific okay and so i didn't get as many syncs and placements as a lot of my friends because i wasn't singing that like typical love song that sat in the background i was trying to get people's attention i was trying to say something that got people's attention so in a way, I, sh I was shooting myself in the foot, but also that wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't to be in a TV show, so. Sure. Ironically. <laughs> <laughs> so you, um, you also take the Kickstarter plunge mm -hmm. and uh, you managed to raise quite a lot of money, according to Wikipedia. 30 grand. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Another tick for the old Wikipedia. Um, 
and you uh, record your second album with Tony Berg in yeah. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What was um, that? What was Los Angeles like in, for you? Was it the first time you'd kind of been there for a uh, period of time? Yeah, I'd been going back and forth to LA for work, um, writing trips and stuff, but not a whole lot. Uh, but I met Tony because my ex at the time, she was another singer-songwriter and she was making a record with Tony Berg. And so I went in there to sort of sing background vocals on something. And I met Tony and loved him. He was super eccentric guy and very talented, very interesting. Um, I was like, shit, I want to make my album with this guy. <laughs> but he's a, you know, he wasn't cheap. Tony's a, he's a legend. I mean, he's in the music industry. He's a, he's a legend and he uses legendary musicians on his recordings. So I knew that if I wanted to make a record with Tony, thankfully he wanted to make one with me too, after I showed him some music, um, mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to need some cash and I didn't have any. So, and everybody was doing Kickstarter at the time. So I decided to do the same thing. And I had this YouTube following, you know, so I thought, why not uh, see how much I can raise? So I raised 30 grand, which was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The album was more than that. Uh, sure. So I borrowed, I borrowed some money from family and friends as well, which was a very stressful thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, I made this record with Tony. I was in LA for a month. Um, I mean, my favorite drummer of all time played on my album. His name is Matt Chamberlain, an absolute legend. Blake Mills, the guitar player who's at this point, I mean, ever, he's a legend as well, but at that time he was kind of just up and coming young guitar player. Now he's, mm-hmm. you know, now he's producing John Legend records and fucking, you know. Um, I had just unbelievable musicians on this album. So it was, it was so cool. It was such a cool experience and, um, and finished this great album that I'm very proud of called, I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. And nobody cared about it. <laughs> 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 so then, so then I, uh, so then I recorded an acoustic version of it myself at home in my bedroom for free and everybody seemed to care about that one. So. Oh, really? Is that the way around it? The, the acoustic version is far more popular than the uh, the version I made with Tony Burke. Interesting. Do you um... Which, uh, taught me a valuable lesson that I still have not learned from. <laughs> the um the full band version of the album was that the kind of your dream version of the way that it should have sounded. Fuck yeah! I mean, I was yeah. so so epically proud of that album yeah. i made it how i wanted it i made it, it it was it was exactly what i wanted and i and I, I came out of that like being so fucking proud and so excited to share it with people yeah it's... and it, that album got me a lot of respect in the music in the music community like because because everyone knew the musicians on the album and everybody knew tony and they were like wow this record sounds amazing and i can't believe you had matt chamberlain and within the music scene it was i, I was i was very uh it, it, I was, it was a popular record, but in the mainstream, nobody gave a fuck because <laughs> it's just so it's so uh, it's got a lot of sounds on there that are just odd, you know, and and cool and weird. And uh, I don't think it translated to, to the to the masses. Well, it feels I was listening to it today in preparation for the interview. And it does. I mean, I know that people love to say, oh, the record feels timeless, but it really does. Like right. it's so warm and so clear. Um, and I think because there isn't, you say weird noises, but it doesn't feel 
anchored to a time with with a particular like electronic music or beats or anything that yeah. would that would place it at a point in time that's why i like tony because tony that's how tony is like he mm. he's a contrarian he's a he's a he doesn't go with what's popular in fact he goes hardcore in the other direction which is a good and bad thing i think i made a great record that a, great, a really great unsuccessful record with tony burke and i think that's what I mean, I would say that that was what Tony was about, but he produced both of, both of the Phoebe Bridges records. So, you know, okay, I think they did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they um, did okay. Yeah. So uh, Tony knows Tony knows what he's doing, and he he very much fights against the grain, which I which I loved. And at that time, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I was I was a singer songwriter with my middle fingers in the air. I was I was right. writing songs called "I Don't Believe You" and 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 songs that were a bit more had a bit more bite to them than like the classic like loves love song that a lot of people were singing at the time so i was i really was seeing myself as a rebel which i mean is not true i'm not fucking rebellious but <laughs> at the time i saw myself as this guy that was like fuck you a little bit and so i made a record with a guy that was the fuck you guy right right and i don't regret yeah. it i don't i don't regret it at all no and i don't and i think that listening to it today i would completely agree with you because it, it feels it doesn't feel like it panders to anything. It just feels you can feel the creator doing exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. That's the sense that I got from it. It sounds exactly how I wanted to sound at that time. I, I didn't walk away feeling like it wasn't a true representation of what I was trying to do. Amazing. Yeah. I'm still proud of it. Yeah. Um. So when it did come out, it did, did you kind of, have expectations for how it was going to land i mean i think everybody i'd be lying if i said no like i wanted it to be a huge singer songwriter record you know mm. and when it came out it went to the top of the itunes singer songwriter charts you know like um for a second before i cheer and showed up and then ruined that for everybody um <laughs> yeah you know we were all able to sort of float in the top of these iTunes charts for a long time. Me and my friends, you know, we were all up there and, and then Ed de like just obliterated the singer songwriter charts. Um, so we all sort of disappeared, but at the time, I think it did what I hoped it would do, which it got people's attention. And I was on tour a lot and, um, but it's hard. It's a hard thing to gauge really. It didn't make yeah. any money. Okay. I mean, but I, I, you know, I sold it on tour and, People liked it and I was proud of it. So that's really the, that was what I wanted. It didn't become the iconic singer songwriter record of the, of the uh, um, mid two thousands, <laughs> but you know, sure. yeah, yeah, but not yeah. that I'm aware of anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. I don't know what my, my expectations back then were different than what they are now. I think. Sure. Um, and then in December, you release the Lost Boy as the charity as a charity single. Correct. Now that what you were saying earlier about kind of like um, being a bit rebellious or sticking your fingers up at things, is that where the "I will not be commanded, I will not be controlled" thing was coming from? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, it's so funny. I just started this new series on YouTube, actually. Um, called them my songs and their stories mm. um i've just done one episode so far with a different song but i'm actually doing the lost boy next and so yesterday i was right it's I basically i perform a song in my studio and i have a story that i write about the, how the song came to be 
And I was just writing about the last boy yesterday, so it's, it, it feels a little strange you're asking me that right. question because um, I was so in, 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 uh, so like buried in it yesterday. Um, but I actually wrote that song in my sleep. Amazing. I I woke up one night having read this book called uh, "What Is the What" by Dave Eggers, which was a true story about a Sudanese refugee um, called Valentino Deng and. Uh, I finished the book the night before and I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and oh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this melody in my head and I had the words, I will not be commanded. I will not be controlled. Um, I don't, I don't remember writing them. They were just there in my head. So mm-hmm. um, that's how those lyrics came to be. And that, that they were, they were from the vein of this character, this real, I mean, he's a real, he's a real person, but he's a character in the book, but it was, he, he, he um, was a, a refugee in South Sudan and he, he ended up being one of the lost boys that walked thousands of miles to get away from genocide. Mm-hmm. And I think in the verses, that's just all about his story of getting away from all that. And then the chorus is, yeah, it's like a fuck you. It's like, I'm not going to let you control me. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, and, that's where that came from, I guess. And that song kind of takes off in, um, in the Netherlands? Yeah, another. I feel like I've, st- I've told this story eight billion times. So oh, I'm, I'm so to... sorry. No, no, no. I'm it's so... fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out a way of telling it that feels fresh. But um, yeah, essentially, what happened was the morning after I wrote the song in my sleep, mm-hmm. I recorded it in my in my Brooklyn apartment. I just on my laptop, you know, super lo-fi. And I sent it to a DJ that I was aware of in Holland, this guy called Eric Cotone, because um, I knew that he worked for the Red Cross and, it, and he was a music lover. He was like kind of like the John Peel of Holland. You know, he he was a big music lover. He helped people's careers and, and someone had told me to get in touch with him a, a, a while back. And so anyway, I hit him up and I said, hey, man, I just wrote this song. Um, we'd been communicating for a few months before this. So I said, so we were pretty, we were able to be, I was able to be pretty candid at that point. And I said, Hey man, I just wrote the song this morning. I don't know what you think, but I'd love your opinion. And he writes back and he loved it. And he tells me about this charity campaign that's happening in Holland that happens every Christmas um, called serious request. And he said, uh, I'd actually really like to use this song. On, I'd, I'd like to play it on the radio. And this song is not even 24 hours old at this point. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, uh, sure. I mean, it sounds like wow. shit. It sounds like shit. And he's like, I don't care. It sounds great. Let me play it. So I had no idea what Serious Request was. I had no idea how big this thing was. It's basically like our version of Children in Need. It's massive. Oh, wow. Like the whole country watches it on TV. Um, I had no idea. Wow. And so he plays it on the radio. I, he actually sends me like one of those live stream links where I can watch it. And I click on the link, not having a clue what to see, what to expect. And it's this live broadcast in a glass house in the middle of a main town square and there are thousands of people around and it's on live tv and i'm like oh shit this is big and so i was actually at my buddy tristan's house with his mom and dad and i just happened to be i forget why i was even there but we tuned in and i was like oh shit this is actually quite a big deal and then eric's texting me he's like people loving the song blah 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 and they played it a couple times and then this was right before Christmas in, I think, 2011. Sorry, I told you this was a long story. Um, and it ends up creeping up the charts, up the, uh, up the uh, iTunes charts in Holland. And I'm watching it. 
as he's playing it and I'm thinking, shit, this is, this is kind of crazy. And over the next couple of days, he keeps playing it on this campaign and it goes to number one <laughs> in Holland wow. on, on Christmas Eve. And I'm, I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, dude, you, you got to come to Holland. <laughs> so, uh, so I flew to, I flew to Holland on Christmas Eve and I, uh, ended up playing the show with him. He played guitar for me as well. Um, in front of like 10,000 people. It was the first time I've ever played the song in my life. I had it written on paper in front of me, the lyrics. And wow. on live TV, on live TV in front of 11 million people. And this song is, at this point, this song is like less than two weeks old. Wow. It was, it was insane. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know how to explain that time without just blabbing because yeah. it was such a, such a trippy experience for me. It was, no one really knew who I was. And, and all of a sudden I'm like number one in Holland with this, like my shows that I had booked for later in the year, it's sold out immediately. I had to make the <laughs> venues bigger. And it was one of those dream experiences that unfortunately my uh, team behind me at the time couldn't capitalize on. So it didn't, it didn't go where I would have, liked for it to have gone in terms of you know taking advantage striking while the iron's hot the iron was sure. not struck oh shame it was lightly patted <laughs> but it was hot it was hot the iron was hot and we sort of just tap, tapped it a little bit we didn't we didn't uh unfortunately that was a missed opportunity that i look back on with regret but whatever what can you do yeah yeah i hear that um we have it written down on our notes to play the last boy now um if that's okay i yeah. did also want to give a little shout out because i've just seen it in my notes and i accidentally skipped over it because that's what i do because i have severe adhd uh is bar on a oh, yeah. favorite of mine from this record and i thought of it because it's it's got that wonderful opening with the crowd talking and stuff and yeah it just feels so reminiscent of um the things we talked about yeah so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make Matt play two songs. So nice. we're going to do a bar on A, and then we're going to do The Lost Boy, and you're going to listen to them now. So we find ourselves in 2012, I believe. Yes. So you've had, so Lost Boy, was that all 2011? That was the end of 2011. 2011. into 2012. 2012. We're in 2012. Um, and you can guess what we're going to talk about next. Um, so, uh, if I get got the story straight, you you'd been doing some kind of writing sessions with Drew Pearson. Actually, that was the first one. It's the first one, okay. Yeah. Um, and you happened to write a song called "Home," which I did happen to do that. Kind of did all right. I guess it did all right. Yeah. <laughs> do Do you want to explain to uh to the listeners, um, how this song came about and I guess what happened with it? Uh, so I wrote this song with a guy called Drew Pearson on an LA writing trip. Funnily enough, a few days before I wrote The Lost Boy, I wrote both of those songs in the same week. Oh, nice, good productive um, week. What's that? Good productive week then. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um. I wrote it in LA on my, it was like the last day of a writing trip, I think. Um, I'd never met Drew. And actually, funnily enough, I actually tried to cancel a session that I that I wrote that song in. I'm really glad I didn't. Um, but anyway, Drew and I wrote the song in a few hours on a Friday afternoon, I think. Uh, didn't really think anything of it, to be honest. It was, it was an okay song. And I went home back to New York and 
kind of forgot about uh, until about six months later when it was heard by the one and only Jimmy Iovine, uh, who at the time I think owned American Idol or was running American Idol. Or I don't really know. Um, he, anyway, long story short, he ended up picking that song to be the coronation song for one of the finalists in American Idol in 2012. Um, and then the guy won American Idol, Philip Phillips, he won American Idol with my song. And then Home was a number one song in America. Which how, was pretty wild. How, yeah. How, how did you feel about this situation? <laughs> I felt great. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like... It wasn't a Greg Holden song, you know, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't going to record it. I wasn't, I mean, it, I wrote it, but it wasn't like I was totally emotionally attached to it. it would, maybe it would have been, I would have felt differently if it was Lost Boy or Boys in the Street or something like that. But it was, you know, it was a, it was a song that I didn't really, I felt fine about, but didn't really care all that much about. Um, so I felt great because, you know, I was broke. I was so <laughs> broke and I you know and and for my song to be given the exposure of American Idol and the finale and then to be a number one song I mean I have a, I have a plaque over here um that's I mean it, it was massive it was a massive it was a massive hit I wrote a hit song in America well I mean what more can a songwriter want mm. and just to, my life. to it completely changed my life with those kind of um writing sessions and not just for this song but i know you know just generally these writing sessions that you attend what when you walk into those rooms what's the actual aim of the day or the afternoon or whatever it is is it to write a hit song for american idol or is it literally let's write some songs and hopefully they get picked up how i'm it's intrigued to know how yeah, it works generally it's the latter it's it's let's write a song period yeah. Um, and then we both have publishers and we'll see what our publishers do with those songs. It's very right. rare that you go in, it does happen, but it's very rare that you go in and like, today we're going to write a song for Katy Perry. You know, it's yeah, very rare yeah. that, that happens. And I have been in sessions like that. And, um, but generally it's to go in, meet a person, strike up a good relationship and then write a good song that your publishers are happy with. And then it's their job to find a home for that song. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, I'd never met Drew, but we said hello. We talked for half an hour, and then we wrote a song in an hour and a half, and and then we left. And then I left, and then both of our lives changed. <laughs> <laughs> and is there any? I'm just trying to get my head around it, because if I was in that situation, you already explained with this particular song. You know, you thought it was fine, whatever. It wasn't a Greg Holden song. But in those kind of um, writing sessions, is there not kind of a situation where you, you write a good song and you think, hang on, I'd actually like to keep this for myself rather than let someone else have it? Yeah. Is that... And does that yeah, happen? Yeah, I mean, because or... you don't go in. Yeah, I mean, because you don't go in. I mean, the problem what would happen with me is because I was an artist. I think a lot of the writers that I was going with would think we're writing this song for him. He's an artist. Uh, yeah, this is... yeah. This is going to be a song for him. And I had a chip on my shoulder. I was like, no, I write my own songs. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> so we're writing this for somebody else. Okay. You know, I was, I was kind of had a bad attitude about it. Um, but generally if there's an artist in the room 
the song is usually for the artist. Gonna be for them. But okay. I, was, I was not just an artist; I was a songwriter as well. So I was I was often confused for people. People were often confused about what they were writing for when I was in the room. Um. But anyway, you, to answer your question is like, yeah, totally. Sometimes we write a song that I like, and I'm like, oh fuck, I'm gonna take this. Mm. There's no there's no rules because it's not like we're writing it for someone. Um, in specific, someone specifically, anyway, usually. Yeah. And sometimes okay. nothing happens. Sometimes uh, you don't even write anything. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's just completely awkward for three hours, and then you find a way to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds horrendous. Um... Yeah, it, it, honestly, it is horrendous. I mean, for the most part, I like to find the people that I like to work with, and then only work with them because it's otherwise it's like blind dates all the yeah. time. Yeah, and that's what that week was. That week in LA when I wrote home, I'd been on seven blind dates. I'd written seven songs in seven days, and I just burnt out, mm. completely burnt out. And that's why home doesn't even have a chorus. It's just ooze because I just couldn't be bothered writing a chorus. <laughs> and uh, as, as it was, mistake that, of my life <laughs> that, that uh, works well for Philip Phillips, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to for people that maybe don't know a couple of a few numbers I guess we should do. Um so it might be more than this now but about 5 million copies in the states does that sound about right? A bit more than that now I think more like bit more, six. Bit more or just just the just the six now. Um uh, best ever selling song at that time um by someone from American Idol. Um, and do you know, Greg, how many Spotify plays it's had? No. I can tell you. It. it oh, do you want to guess? Should we, should we have a bit of fun? I don't <laughs> want to guess. Give us a guess. I guess way more and it's way less. I'm going to be super oh, yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't, I actually, I won't put you in that situation. Well, the interesting um, thing is it was pre-Spotify. This song in its, in its most successful time was pre-Spotify. So mm. I think Spotify streaming is not even a solid reflection of of how the song did well let, let's tell you the number and then you can decide whether you agree with that statement or not it's uh, <laughs> it, it's on it's on just 255 million at the moment okay well, that's all right that's all right <laughs> yeah we'll take that it's a shame spotify doesn't pay anything so well that I've, I've literally written on my notes joke that must have made you about 50 dollars or something I mean, I'm sure it was a lot more than that, but it's not, you know, it's whatever 0. 0.004 cents per stream is. That is just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, And so how how did it change your life, this, this happening? I'm not talking about money, um, but how did it change your life going forward from a, a musical point of view? Well... Again, to, to, to talk about missed opportunities of striking while the iron is hot, um, it could have changed my life in much more drastic ways had I had the right team around me at the time. But again, I didn't. Um, but it put my name in a very high place in the songwriting world for a brief period of time. So had again, had I had the right team around me, that probably would have found myself in, a, in some pretty amazing situations uh, songwriting-wise. But I was also still very much trying to be an artist. I wasn't trying to be a songwriter. So it, in a way I was fighting, I regret it now, but in a way I was fighting against the success because it, I didn't want to be a songwriter for other people. I wanted to be playing the shows. I wanted to be on stage. So I was being treated like this 
uh, non-artist songwriter. So in, in, in a way, I, I actually rebelled and, 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 and retreated mm. away, from, away from the success. Um, monetarily, it changed my life because I, I, I got checks that I couldn't believe that, that meant that I could pay my bills and, and I wasn't yep. stressed about money. And that was unbelievable. And, and it made me realize how much of my life I've spent really worrying about money and really stressed. And um, funnily enough, it actually hurt my creativity, though. Okay. When you, I think once you become comfortable, that fire yep. that's in your belly goes away a little bit. Yep. So you actually, lose I that drive actually, and that desire yeah, to keep pushing. In a way, it hurt, it hurt my songwriting for a while um, until I grew up. Um, but in terms of career, just I think if anything, it just brought my name into a higher place. Mm-hmm. So it, it, opened, it opened some doors that weren't, open, weren't accessible before. So I guess uh, before before we play it, we will play it. Um, just because we were talking, we were joking about it earlier. This this song has its own Wikipedia page, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a lengthy read. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but um, for people who might want to go and check that out. Um, but anyway, uh, we we should play it. So this is just to add to the five the two hundred and fifty five million listens um this is home performed by philip phillips written by greg holden andrew pearson andrew pearson um so i've been reading the wikipedia page for this song (laughs) um it's it's really like i can i can sum it up basically everyone says it's the only cool american idol song essentially yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's what that's what they're all saying I mean, honestly, man, I couldn't believe it when they called me. My manager called me and he said that yeah. they want to use home because I have to approve it. They can't just do it. Oh. And he, um, he said they want to use home on American Idol. And I was like, what? It just Because, you know, you think about those songs, you think about Simon Cowell and all that bullshit, and you think about the songs that they use. Yeah. And, and you're like, why the fuck would they want to use this? <laughs> like, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Um, but they did, and I guess it worked. I, th- I think it worked because it was nothing like any other American Idol song. I think it was genius for them to pick a song like that, whether or not it was my song or not. I mean, I think for them to do a song that was in, that sounded like that was smart if they wanted to rebrand American Idol. And actually, funnily enough, this is a fact that I do know, that song saved American Idol. Oh, American Idol really? probably gone away if it wasn't for that song, and I hated hated American Idol at that point. <laughs> yeah, but you and saved like, it. No, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, I, I, you know, I feel very grateful for American Idol now, and it's it's paid for the house that I'm living in. So, I mean, I'm very grateful for it. I don't, I don't want to talk shit on it. I do still sure. disagree with those game show type um, shows when they sort of turn songwriting and performing into some sort of competition or boxing match. I think that in a way they've ruined why people are creative. And I will say that with confidence, you know, I, I, I think for dancing, for, for singing, for, for anything, these shows, they, they have three fucking douchebag judges and the, and then, and the, and then, and everything is about this entertaining grossness and, um, 
it's and now people for the most part try to create music so they can go on those shows and mm. i think that that's a downside i don't think there's anything wrong with getting people exposure and to a certain extent exposing people's talents but the way that it's done now is just it's ruined or ruining uh, a huge part of why people are creative i think you should yeah. have um the following year you should have queued up and auditioned for american idol with that song not gonna lie i thought about it <laughs> that, that would have been great amazing and i was gonna sing home as yeah. my audition yeah perfect yeah amazing i did end up the irony is that as much as i hate those shows i ended up writing a lot of songs for people on on those reality shows okay. i became the go-to, i became one of the go-to guys for some reason to write songs for people who either won american idol or, or lost american idol or were, were number three on american idol i don't know why i ended up just being one of those people I, probably because i wrote the winning song for american idol that people were like oh he he'll he'll be a good match <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot of um, creativity amongst the suits or the executives, is there? Nope. No, no, nope. no. Because after nope. that, I end up going through the mill. I mean, maybe you're going to ask me or not, but I, after after the home thing, I did end up, you know, making a new record and going through a major label and stuff like that. But I don't know if that was part of your plan to talk about that, so I'll, I won't go into it yet. But no, yes, that's the whole plan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How was um? How... God, you guys are so predictable. I know, it's almost yeah, we like are... we're following a yeah, timeline yeah. or something. Yeah, we are, yeah. <laughs> um so how so with so the warner brothers the warner brothers of it all did yeah. they how obviously so um the nice thing about this podcast is most of our um audience are a bit older and they remember the kind of like the major label suckness of the 90s yeah um which was obviously kind of gone a bit by the time we get now because they were all that's left other than self-releasing how yeah. did you kind of um how how did you feel about signing for a major? I I wanted to go to the next level. Yeah. Um, and I knew that that was the only way I was going to be able to do it. Mm. So I recorded an album. Oh, well, actually, I, so that's what happened. Originally, I signed with a small company out of Los Angeles, and had been lined up and scheduled to make my next album uh that is called chase the sun mm-hmm. with a guy called greg wells who was a very mm-hmm. successful producer um made some massive he made some one republic records and um uh, katie perry records and he was he's a big big producer so they were gonna they were gonna send me in the studio to make a, my next album with him this is post home um and a week before I was due to go make this album with him, they went out of business mm-hmm. as most independent companies do. Yeah. Uh, they went out of business. And so I was scheduled to make this album with Greg Wells. So I had a choice, cancel or pay with my own money. Um, Canceling was not an option. Um, so I ended up spending my own money, all of it, to make this record with Greg Wells. And so I did, and this came out great. Um, but then at the end of the album, uh, Greg said to me, he's like, I've got a buddy who, one of my good friends just became the head of Warner Brothers. Um, he's a m- big music lover, really nice guy. Um, not at all one of the, like the, the sort of typical major label heads. 
and I think he would really love this record. Do you mind if I show it to him? So he did, and the guy loved it. And he flew to New York and tried to sign me and loved, I loved him. Um, and uh, it seemed like a great fit. I was like, you know what? This guy loves music. He's the head of a label. He said he's going to change the label. He said he's going to, you know, rebrand it as like the old Warner Brothers where they love rock music. And, you know, okay. so I believed him. And, and I think he believed himself too. Unfortunately, the music industry is not really going in that direction. So anyway, I signed this deal to Warner Brothers and I got my money back because that's really what I was hoping to do was get the money that I just invested into my album back because it was a lot of money and I didn't have it mm. just to throw away. Um, so I signed my deal with Warner Brothers, got it back, met all the team. Everyone was really nice. Like, this is the problem with labels, right? Everyone's fucking really nice. <laughs> like, everyone's nice. Everyone says yeah. how great you are. Like, I, and I was going through the... I was going through the major label motions. I, I, I felt like a star and they did that on purpose. You know, they, I pick, I walked through the Warner brothers offices in Los Angeles and my face is plastered all over the wall. Like people are clapping, you know, it's all that, like, it's all that shit. It's the shit. And it's the shit that makes you feel cool. and makes you feel like a rock star and they know exactly what they're doing. Right. Six months later, it's someone else's face and I'm completely unimportant. Um, so they invest so much money into music videos and, press and pictures and mastering getting an album remixed and remastered and artwork and you know they went to town on spending money i mean that's what these guys are good at just spending excessive amounts of money and i was loving it <laughs> of course i was right. loving it man i was making music videos i had makeup artists i had stylists it was it was the thing right. you know it was the thing that people dream of i felt like a fucking star and they were flying me everywhere and it was awesome it was fucking right. awesome until the album came out and no one cared about the album. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, and then they were like, Oh, okay, well on to the next one. Cause that's what they do. They, they blow you up. They blow you up. They blow you up. And then the album comes out and if it doesn't sell, they, they move on. And so that's what happened. You know, I, I got, I didn't get dropped right away. Mm -hmm. Um, but I could sense, <laughs> I could sense the Greg Holden enthusiasm sort of disappear. Sure. You know, once those first nut set of numbers came out for the album. Um, and then they just started making bad decisions and they wouldn't let me make my own decisions. And and then Dan, the guy that signed me to Warner Brothers, he got fired. Uh, and so then I knew that my he was my only real ally at the company at that point. So I was like, well, he's got fired. There's only a matter of time before I'm getting dropped. So uh, I got dropped. And they didn't, they own that album now. They own the album that I paid for myself and, and, and recorded. Um, they own it. So every penny that goes towards that fucking album goes into Warner Brothers' bank account, not mine. Um, oh, that must be extremely tough. It stings. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Because I'm proud um, of that album. It's a, good al it's a good album. It's my most commercially successful album, too. And I don't get money for it. Yeah. Um, well, we can try not to play songs. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. Like, I never really know how to how to how to handle it. Really, it's like, yeah, yeah. No, I hear that. I hear that. But the the the, the songs that are on it are spectacular. Thank you. And really beautiful. Um, Boys on the street specifically breaks me every time I listen to it. Um, it's it. It feels slightly unusual because of its very kind of um, 
specific storytelling structure. Yeah. Was that something you had as a concept or did it sort of, what am I trying to say? It, it It's wrapped up so neatly and so beautifully that I think, and, and it has such an emotional curve to it. Was that something you, you set out with a vision to, you're probably going to talk about this on your YouTube channel later, aren't you? And you're yes. thinking, I'm going to spoil this now by talking to this ginger. No, man. no, because I've told a story. I've told this story as well a million times. A lot of these stories I've told before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, again, it's just trying to find ways to tell them that feels fresh. But um, I actually wrote that song for some friends of mine. They had an organization called Everyone is Gay. Mm-hmm. And they basically, they help kids and parents um, of, you know, um, gay, lesbian, straight, qu- no, no, not straight, gay, lesbian, queer, uh, LGBTQ community mm-hmm. kids. Uh, they, they sort of help guide them in when, when they're from environments where that's not necessarily an accepted thing. So anyway, mm-hmm. they're really great. And they, they um, put together this compilation album every year and they asked their musician friends, hey, can you write a song for our compilation record? And the brief was, write the gayest song ever. <laughs> And Great brief. I don't really do songs like that because a lot of my friends would create these really beautiful sort of campy, fun songs about how being gay is great. And, 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 and it was all, it was, you know, they're great songs. I don't write songs like that. That's not who I right. am. I'm, I take, I'm very serious. I'm very moody um, in my songs anyway. So I was like, how am I going to write a song like what they're asking for? in the way that I write. So I focused my attention on my stepdad. I have a terrible relationship with my stepdad, or did. Um, and I was like, I'm gonna try and combine my story with him with a narrative that fits what I'm being asked to do. Okay. Um, and I did, and it, I wrote that song in about 20 minutes. I don't even know how. Uh, still look back on that song. I'm like, how the fuck did I write that? I really do. That song to me, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's like my, that's my masterpiece. I'm not going to write a better song than that. I don't think. Um, and I don't know where it came from, but, uh, Tom Petty once said that sometimes songs like someone else just sends it down to you, like the universe sends it down to you and you're just like a vehicle for it. I feel like that with that song. Uh, so I don't really know how to answer your question really, because I don't really remember writing that song to be honest. No, that's fine. It just um, sort of came out. Yeah, and as a creative person myself, I've definitely experienced some of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I do. I do think that if you put yourself in the right place with an open mind, things come. Yeah, and and I'm not sure they're generated um, within. I think it comes from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Or it's yeah. like deep in your subconscious somewhere. Right. And, you know, it just sort of comes out, and you don't really. You just let it happen. You don't yeah. try and write it. I didn't try to write that song. I didn't try to write a storyline. I didn't try to have a beginning, middle, and end. I just, that's just what happened. Yeah. Um, we also, well, Matt uh, very much wants to talk about working with these, with Ace Enders. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to shut up, I think, and let Matt uh, ask about that. Yeah. Um, on that album, A Wonderful World. Yeah. You, you wrote that with Ace. Um, yeah which I'm a massive early November fan. You've already said you're a massive early November fan. Yeah. Um, 
he seems like a good dude. How how was that experience? He really is one of the kindest, sweetest guys I've ever met. I mean, I forget even how we ended up being in touch. I think it was a weird coincidence. I think I'm trying to remember when it was. It was like 2012, 13, I think 13. Um, and I was in Nashville. And I, for some reason, I'd gone home and like gotten drunk and, and, and laid in my bed on my computer and like remembered that I liked emo, you know, <laughs> and, and did that thing where you like wonder where everyone is now, like yep. Googling like the Get Up Kids now, or early November now, or whatever. So I Googled early November now and saw that they were still playing. I was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. I love that they're still playing and um, went down a little trip down memory lane with early November, you know. And then I was out one that next night in a bar. I met some guy at a bar who was, I think he was like a executive for a label or something, but he was a big emo fan. And he was he, out of nowhere. He mentioned the early November and I was like, oh, that's weird. I was just looking, I was just talking, I was just uh, watching videos of them last night, wondering what they were up to. And he's like, oh, Ace is a really good friend of mine. Um, I can introduce you guys if you want. I think he would really like you. And I was like, Okay, why not? Okay. So, so anyway, he uh, he email. I think he did like an email intro or whatever, and introduced me and Ace. And so we started chatting. And Ace lives in New Jersey, and I lived in New York. So he was like, "Hey, you want like let's get let's get together." So I was like, "Fuck it, why not? Why why wouldn't we?" So I mean, anyway, I ended up getting breakfast with him one morning in in Manhattan. It was so weird because like I didn't tell him that I was an November fan. <laughs> Cause I did, I didn't, he, he knew my son, he knew home. He was, a, he, I think he wanted to work with me cause he knew I was writing songs like that. And I just wanted to meet Ace cause it was Ace from early November and it'd be yep. fucking awesome to write with him. Um, so I didn't tell him. Uh, and then we had breakfast and I feel like he invited me to, he said, oh, my band's playing a show at Barry Ballroom this week or something. And I, I think I did something like, oh, what's your band? You know, kind of like, <laughs> oh, you're in a, you're in a band, like I think, are you? <laughs> I, I seem to remember, maybe my memory's like changing at something, but I seem to remember like playing, playing stupid. And so anyway, I went to the show and it was fucking awesome. And I was in the pit, like singing every word. And every time Ace would sort of look over in my direction, I would like turn around. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> pretend you don't know the words. Just pretend I didn't know, like he couldn't see me or whatever. And then I went upstairs and met the whole band afterwards and, and uh, and I was like secretly fangirling out, but um, also just really liked Ace as a person. So we ended up um, we ended up writing some songs together, and one of them was a wonderful world. Yeah, we put it on the record, and it was great. It, it, you know, just uh, he's just a girl, good fucking guy. Not got any bad words to say about Ace. He's a fantastic human. I haven't spoke to him in a while, but it was cool to have a song on my album that was written with me and him for sure. Considering that I grew up listening to his band. Yeah, definitely. And I've recently yeah. become friends with, uh, Andrew McMahon too, from, uh, Have you? yeah, he James, and I were, James is, uh, eyes have lit up. Well, he's, he is be fast becoming one of my closest friends. And, uh, we met, uh, a songwriting camp in Hawaii recently and just had one of those like three day bromances where we were inseparable and just, Everyone was joking how we were like the gay couple on the on the on the <laughs> on the retreat, and I was totally okay with it, and I think he was too. Um, and anyway, he's another one that I was just, but I was honest with him. I was like, "Look, I I totally grew up listening to something corporate, 
and um, we had a night where we had to play a show at the end of this Hawaiian songwriting retreat and he played at home with me on piano and I played uh, woke up in a car with him uh, and uh, Cecilia and I played some of his songs with him and it was so weird I'm like I'm really playing this fucking something corporate song with Andrew right now this is so weird yeah super cool I like that because I think it's more possible these days for me to be reconnected with my some of the people that I grew up idolizing because we're the same age and we're in the same industry and now I'm a bit more of a peer and less of a fan mm, in sure. that sense so I keep finding myself like getting reconnected with some of these people like I had a moment it was a weird moment but I I uh, I was emailing with um, Tim Armstrong for a while from Rancid well you know okay <laughs> because he so I had a moment, it was a very strange moment and uh, showing, they, Rancid played a show in New York at Terminal 5 and I went with a friend of mine who was a exec from I think Universal or something. And I told him I was a big Rancid fan, you know. Uh, anyway, we were all backstage at the end of the night and, and he introduces me to Tim Armstrong, which was fucking coolest thing ever. Like he's the coolest, right. coolest guy ever. Terrified, I was terrified. Yeah. And uh he introduces me and he says, this is Greg. Uh, he's a songwriter and he wrote this song, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Tim Armstrong's like, no way, man. And he pulls up his phone and he swipes his phone. He's like, I was just playing this song to my daughter. <laughs> no. And I was like, what? And he's like, let's get together, man. Let's get together. And he gave me his fucking phone number and was like, text me when you're in LA. Let's work together. And I'm like, oh, man. What? <laughs> so we, we wrote we wrote back and forth for a second. Nothing materialized, but I thought that was fucking cool. I've got Tim Armstrong's number in my phone. I think that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's fucking cool. Because Just like there's moments like that. Yeah. That's not that that that'd be a big moment for me. Um did Tim Bag or Tim Armstrong, I can't quite believe he has a phone or an email address. I know. Like it doesn't it doesn't quite fit the brand. I know. Like I feel more like you'd have to like leave a handwritten note under a rock or something. I and do remember getting like... a lot of emails from his assistant. Oh, like, okay. And, yeah. Oh, okay. Assistant. Yeah. That also sounds weird. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. He was, great. He was super cool and so sweet. And I met Lars too afterwards and like super nice guys, man. Terrifying looking, but like very sweet. I feel like we should play a rancid song just to kind of for fun. What yeah. uh, what is what, what springs to mind for you? Uh, Olympia WA. Of course. What yeah. what else would it be my absolute favorite? This is Olympia WA by Rancid. I wasn't expecting to go down that uh, <laughs> avenue. <laughs> that wasn't on the notes. Yeah. <laughs> you know I me. love it. I love to just swing off piste. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um so, Warner, drop you just as you're about to record World War Me. Is that correct? Correct. Well, actually, yeah. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Yeah. Did them dropping you, was that a, a relief or was that a holy fuck, what am I going to do now moment? Honestly, it was a little bit of both. Hmm. I think I was getting a little bit tired of how many people I had to get things approved by before I could do anything. Yeah. Um, it really is like that in labels. Everyone has their fucking two cents and yep. nothing against any of them. They're all wonderful. They're all just trying to do their jobs. I've not got any grief over anyone um, in the labels. 
it's just the way that the label is a, as a machine. It, it just mm. breeds that sort of behavior. But everyone I love, I loved everyone at Warner Brothers. I've got nothing bad to say about them. Um, but it just requires so much um, pr- approval and red tape. And I hated it after a while. It ruined all spontaneity. Any any cool idea that anybody had just, uh, just got chewed up and spat out. And, you know, by the time... By the time anyone had made a decision, it was too late. And so I was sick of that. But I will say that being dropped once you're on a label and then you're back to being an indie artist is quite scary. Mm. Because all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck am I going to do now? You know, it feels like you got fired or something. Yep. And so what were your, were your plans for that out, for recording that album? Did they change at all with this? Yeah, because I was going to make that record with a guy called Butch Walker, who I'm a big fan of, love Butch so much. Um, well, he and I were planning to make that record together and then when shit hit the fan with being dropped I wasn't about to drop all that money again on my own because um, I knew that I wasn't going to try and get another record deal after that so I didn't see the point in the climate that we were in it was Spotify times you know there was not a lot of money involved um, so I was like I'm not going to drop 50, 60, 70 grand to record this album because there's no fucking way I'm going to make that money back. No way. So I, Warner Brothers thankfully had given me a small advance for my next record um, that I didn't have to pay back. So I invested in some gear for my studio and just upgraded my studio and recorded myself. Okay. Smart. I'll yeah. Um, yeah you I, mean, came out great. I came out great. I'm, ha- I'm really happy with the way that the record sounds for the, mo- for the most part. You yeah, know, it was in it. A- it's a very strange time for me because I was doing a lot of pop co-writes at that time. I was doing a lot of my music was much poppier, and I think that album sort of it reflects that on the album a little bit. There's much more pop sounds in there. More yeah, sense. it's definitely a different um, different direction, I would say, as as a listener. Yeah. Um, yeah. You did do one song with Butch Walker, though, and for people that don't know, he's he's worked with the likes of Green Day, Fall Out Boy, Avril, Panic at Disco, Weezer. Friends of the podcast Midtown, who, fun Love fact Midtown. for you, Greg, me and James are actually in Midtown officially. Um, wow. You have to listen to a, an old interview to understand what went on there. Um, you know that story. <laughs> I can't play any instruments, but I am in Midtown. Great. I love Midtown. Um, so you did one song, James is laughing now. Uh, you did one song with with Butch. Was that like when you were still deciding kind of whether you're going to go with the producer not go with the yeah that was that was so pre being dropped okay right so we recorded that one and another one uh that didn't make the record uh and so that was sort of um you know let's do some songs together see if it works out yeah and see if we should make a record together and we did and it worked out and we were going to make the record together but then i got dropped and i couldn't i just couldn't justify the money and i couldn't ask butch you know being at the level that he's at to do it for less than he's worth yeah and did you do you find it in hindsight maybe easier or harder um working with a producer or just doing things yourself what what do you prefer well, it's hard because I am I am a producer and I'm a control freak too, and I do know how I want my music to sound. So every production I've done with anyone has been a co-production for sure. Like even the Tony Berg record, I was very vocal about what I wanted, and sounds that I was trying to achieve. 
but doing it on your own is really hard too because i i procrastinate like i it takes a long time i mean recording world war me mentally fucking murdered me it was so hard finishing that album in what way I just, well i just ended up doubting everything so much so i would finish a song and i would end up completely re-recording it over and over again i did i think there's one song that i recorded four different times with completely different sounds to try and find the right version of it and it made me insane and, and so i guess what I song it it's is nice to have a producer because they sort of they act as this guardrail to stop you yeah. from going off off the edge you know and they sort of keep you in line and it's it's nice to have that uh yeah it's, i would prefer to work with a producer the problem is now is that I, now that I know the music industry so much, it's like I don't want to pay anyone <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not going to make the money back. And it, I, I'm I'm nearly forty. I'm looking at it from a business perspective almost as much as I'm looking at it as a cre- creative endeavor. Like mm. it just doesn't make sense, especially when I can do it on my own. You know, I've invested all this money in this studio and the equipment, and I know how to record. Why wouldn't I? Absolutely. The, the song that you said you, you recorded four or five times, um, mm-hmm. was it Temptation by any chance? No, actually, that was that was quick. Oh, uh, it was, damn it. I thought I was going to guess not, it. it was, I'm not your enemy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, the reason I wondered if it was Temptation, because it's probably my favorite song on the album. Really? And Yeah. And You're the only person that's ever said that. And the re the reason I like it so much is because I don't understand what my ears are hearing, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that sounds weird. But like, there's like sounds on that song that I just I was listening to it again today, and I'm just like, I don't even know what has made that sound. <laughs> <laughs> if you're talking about the intro, it's actually just me whistling into an auto tuner. Yeah. That's part of it. Okay, whistling into an auto-tuner. Okay, that, that does make sense. But I, I fucking love that song. Thanks, man. It's, it's Honestly, the one. first person that's ever said that. Well, there you go. It's It was worth putting on there, just for me. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so how did that album do when, when, it, when you released it? Oh, terrible. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> Your story for every album. I mean, the numbers, the numbers speak for themselves, man, you know? It did horribly. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was a, it was for me that was a, it was like a post-divorce album. Like I just finished it as I was getting divorced, uh, and I went on the road with this new album. That I, you know, with it in my my mental space, my mental head space was in a weird spot. But I made this record. I'm proud of it. I printed it on vinyl. It looks really cool. Um, you know, I like the sound of it. But I mean, it's hard to do well in this in these days, like with the amount of music that comes out and the, the sheer volume of content that's just flowing around always. It's hard to measure success even because the sad thing is that I've, I'm completely measuring that success off Spotify numbers. Yep. Not looking at iTunes because I can't. I'm not looking, you know, I'm, all I'm looking at is Spotify numbers. And that's sad because I think that's what everyone's doing. I think you're i'm basing my success of a stupid internet platform app that rips off musicians i'm basing my worth off of that 
platform, which is a really not a good idea. But here I am doing it. When I want to know if I'm doing well, I'll look at the Spotify numbers. And that's what everybody does. I look at the Instagram numbers and the Spotify numbers. These are two tech companies that know fuck all about music. And uh, I'm basing my career, my successes and career as a musician off of that. It's really interesting that you say that because, I mean, we're massively guilty of that as like fans. Yeah. Doing this podcast. Why wouldn't you be? Why every wouldn't episode you is, to- we talk about it. You can listen to all the music that ever was created in the world for for nine ninety nine a month. Why, as a consumer, it's incredible. As an artist, as someone who's trying to make a living, it's a it's a disaster. Yep, yep, yeah. My last um, single made my last single made like a hundred bucks. Is that right? Yeah, Which brings me on to the the last single. Um, yeah. so you've released a couple of singles. Um last year now because we're in 2023 um what are the what's the kind of plan for for this year is there is there more to come i believe there is more to come i don't have a plan per se i'm gonna do more performance videos try to get my creative juices flowing again and i would like to release more songs i'm not sure about albums i don't know what the point in releasing albums is at this point um but i would like to release more music yes i wish i had a longer better answer for that but really i'm just trying to refine my love of music because honestly the last few years has been a real struggle it's been hard to enjoy being a musician and making music is that creatively or just the whole industry just beating you down or both both because i think that i'm a very purpose-driven person and and so when i sit down to write now i want to know what why i'm writing it where it's going yep. Yep. is it going to be successful or is it going to have a point and i think it's a pessimistic way of looking at things i should try and change my attitude and i am trying to change my attitude but um you know it's hard to sit there in the morning and and, and think about writing a song when you know that it's going to be released alongside like a hundred thousand other songs that day, <laughs> it's not going to get heard probably um, by many people and you're not going to make any money doing it. When, it. when I'm trying to keep a roof over my head, you know, I'm trying to pay my bills and, and I think that it's not going to make any money. I'm like, well, should I go get a job at a fucking, I don't know. Place. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like what, 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 what am I, uh, and look, I want to preface this with, I'm very grateful for my career. I'm very grateful for the situation that I'm in. Um, and I'm very grateful to be, to have been as successful as I have been. And I'm not trying to, you know, sound like an ungrateful brat or anything, but it's just hard to create stuff with no sort of end goal in mind no successful end goal. And a lot yeah. of my friends have told me that that's not the attitude and to tell me like, you should make music because you love it. And I wish sometimes that I loved it as I loved it more. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, the, the advice that for what it's worth that I give people not necessarily about writing music about anything in life is if you don't enjoy doing it, then don't fucking bother doing it. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's as simple as that. But obviously, yeah. that's 
um when it's your job and you know you 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 obviously if one needs to make money it makes it a bit more complicated there's a danger to turning something that you do as a hobby into a living there's a definitely a danger because yeah. there was a period where i loved nothing more than writing music and now it feels like a job and i think that i'll be able to turn it around and enjoy it again one day hopefully and i am starting to as i work more on my own stuff again but it's it's definitely a dangerous you're playing a dangerous game when you're trying to chase turn your hobby into a job for sure i mean you did it man you you know you're running eight gazillion miles a day through like rugged terrain you turn that into a job right yeah exactly which is why i can understand what you're saying yeah i'm sure there are aspects <laughs> of it i'm sure there are aspects of it that you still very much love and i'm sure there's the biz some business sides of it that aren't so fun exactly exactly yeah. that and james has been there as well um, yeah with, with his uh illustration i wish i knew stuff, more about so. you i'm sorry that i don't no that's fine um i, I used to draw pictures for a living um, oh, these, the, the, these I drew these things um, right. that look like photographs, wow. but they're actually drawings. Wow! Um, amazing. I um, uh, yeah, I quit. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so no, but no, but serious, serious. I so what I did was I quit. I quit drawing professionally, and I found a job uh, doing uh, creative things, but not drawing pictures. Right. And many years later. I fell completely back in love with it. Good. And I'm drawing right now more than I ever have in my entire life. That's amazing. Uh, the, the, but the, the trick for me has been to, I have no internet presence. Right. I post absolutely nothing. And I do do things commercially, but I don't charge for it. Amazing. So I, I give, I give it a gift. I call it like the gift of, I don't know, for, for me, for me, it's either a gift or I charge you like a bazillion pounds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. because no, I get the, it. there's no sense in the middle ground because I find yeah. the middle ground incredibly stressful, but also I don't do amends or changes. <laughs> yeah. just get, Coming a pitch. Get, you just get the gift of what I've made. Yeah, and I totally, because, totally. If that makes any that. sense. No, so it absolutely does. So that that for me is how I found my peace with it. If if nobody cares and I'm not going to make any money, great. I'm just going to do the absolutely the thing that I want to do, and yeah, here it is. You can do whatever yeah. you want with it. <laughs> Stress free. Yeah, exactly. That. I bought but the I show. Yeah, I haven't. I, yeah. I haven't performed in uh, my own show and since before the pandemic. Wow. Um. And I really miss it. I realize that performing is the thing that I really do love about music. Being on stage is, is the reason I do this. Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that because I, I toured for so long and touring is fucking brutal. Yeah. And, and if you're not selling thousands and thousands of tickets, which I never have, it's just, it is an existential crisis every day. Yeah. And it's not even monetarily worth it. I mean, I got home from these weeks long tours, just exhausted. My body's beat up. I got liver poisoning, you know, like, and I'm, and I didn't make any money. And in fact, I lost it, you know, and right before the pandemic, actually, right after the world, the first world war me tour, mm -hmm. I got off that tour and I was like, I'm done. I'm not touring anymore. Fuck wow. this. And then the pandemic happened anyway. And so I didn't have to explain to people why I wasn't on tour. Okay. 
um, which was kind of nice. But then I really started missing it. And I've done a couple of like guest performances recently where I show up and sing one song or two songs or whatever. And I, I'm like, fuck, I love this. Yeah. So speaking of what you were talking about, a little, it's a little different, but I booked a show in Portland for February, um, my new hometown. Okay. I booked the smallest venue I could find, literally the yeah. smallest venue I could find. So there was no pressure, no pressure to sell tickets, no pressure to fill it, no pressure for anything. Just, just the tiniest fucking venue I could find. Um, and, I, and I'm no opener. I'm not going to have a band. I'm just going to sit with my, my guitar and I'm going to tell stories and, and it's almost sold out and I'm psyched about that, but there's n- I don't, I'm not, I don't want to do it for money anymore. I want to play music cause I like, cause I love it and I'll figure out something after that, you know, yeah. but I just want to do it cause it's fun. And like going back to what you were saying, I'm either going to do it for free or for a bazillion dollars. Like if someone wants to book <laughs> me for a private, if someone wants to book me for a private show, that's how I'm going to feel too. Like I'm not going to go do the, club gig where you play for a hundred people, 200 people, and you get paid ba- barely anything. And you do that night after night, after night, after night, I'll play a private show at someone's house and they're going to pay me a bazillion dollars. <laughs> or I'm just going to play a tiny show for basically free and not yes. think about it. So um... I can enjoy it. And that pressure is not there. And that, like you say, the amendments and the, I even started saying that for songwriting now because songwriters, you know, our trade is very strange because we don't get paid to work. Right. We get paid if our work becomes successful. Mm. So when I'm in a songwriting session, I'm there for free. I'm in my studio that I pay the fucking electric for. I bought all the equipment. I'm in my house and I'm not getting paid to work mm. with somebody. And, and I could do that for seven days a week for a whole year. And if none of those songs gets released and make, and does well, I just work for free for a year. Um, and not, people don't really know that about our industry. Producers get paid. Yep. Labels get paid. Even the musicians get paid. Right. But the songwriter, nothing until it's successful. Um, and so I've started charging. I just, you know, if, and if someone wants to work with me and wants to write with me, I have a day rate. Great. Because otherwise I'm going to hate myself the whole time I'm in there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I think that's a wonderful idea. It's super strong and it's really clear. Yeah. It's like, look, you want to work with me? It's going to, I've spent 20 years doing this. I'm good at this. You're going to have to pay me. It's going to cost you a bajillion dollars. It's going to cost you a bajillion dollars. <laughs> a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can call it a Rico. It's going to cost you a Rico. Yeah. Um, that feels like a really wonderful, positive place to end it feels healthy to like believe in your own abilities and just charge people the correct fee i mean if i wanted an electrician to come to my house i have to pay him yes if i i just had new floors installed in my house i have to pay them they they look wonderful someone wants me to write them a song they have to pay me (laughs) it's not it's not difficult yeah but for some reason the industry is sort of convinced songwriters that we don't need to be paid but without songs, what what is there? That's it. Everyone else dies. Yeah. Everyone else doesn't get paid because there are no songs. It starts with us and we should be being compensated. And I'm not look, I'm not saying that I'm not being compensated. I'm sitting in a beautiful house that I have music paid for. I'm not trying to be a dick about it. But I am trying to say that there's like 
it, the shit has changed. I'm lucky that home happened when it did before Spotify. Otherwise I would not be sitting in this house right now. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Um, okay. Mr. Buck, how are we going to wrap up? <laughs> Well, yeah. first of we all, turn it into a positive thing. I just complain. We're <laughs> we're, we're going to say thank you, uh, Greg, for for chatting to us. It's been awesome. Um, I I you you know that I always loved your music. I think you're a brilliant storyteller, and I hope Thanks, that you play lots more gigs and I will write lots more songs for your own enjoyment more than anything. Um, because it's always a good time. We've had a lot of uh, good memories singing at the top of our lungs at your gigs over yeah. the years. Um, yeah, I miss it too. So I want to get. I definitely want to do more of that, just more with more intention. You know. Yeah, man. Um, and maybe you should uh, start a pop punk band with Ace or something. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, with, with Tim Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get them all together. Yeah, Tim Armstrong and Ace Enders. There we go. There you That's, go. So, sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much, mate. We'll, um, you, guys. I, I was thinking maybe I'm just gonna like take over and end with Temptation. Wow, just because right. I like it. Choice. As, choice. My, as me and James always say, it's our podcast, we do what the fuck we want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, thank you, Greg. And this is Temptation by Greg Holden, lovely Mr. Greg Holden, such a great guy. Um, so real, so honest, um, and wow, it's so like, I don't think I had appreciated till we started meeting all these working musicians, just how, what a weird old world it is in 2023. Yeah, 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 you're right. It's... But through all the years, apart from like maybe one tiny little period, it's always seems to, it's just like stories of, oh, this went wrong. I'm not just talking about Greg, um, just generally, um, you know, this happened and then that happened and it's all like doom and gloom. And it's like, you really, I just feel very sorry for <laughs> guys that have to put up with all this shit. Yeah, in me this too. industry. Yeah, I feel frustrated. Um, that's that's a better word. Support artists, man. Buy a t-shirt or something. Yeah, we, we always say that, him. don't we? Yeah, we should have. I need to get back on that. That was my little um, project for 2022 that I didn't end up really doing. But I was going to try and buy a, um, a one bit of merch a month. That was going to be my plan. But I'm going to get back on that 2023. Um, on. Don't know if Mr. Holden has any merch. Um, but if he does, get on it. Get on it, yeah. Um, great. So we need to do our admin, yes, which we haven't done for a while. I can't remember it all. Um, right, right, friends. Season four, season fucking four. Yeah, <laughs> you I, should know I, the I was, um, <laughs> I was thinking this this would be episode two of season four. So. Okay. In theory, we've already practiced this once. Oh, right. For um, season I, four. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, good. I was thinking, 
and my like I, I know that it's fun doing it every time but i'd really love to do this with like some comedy like benny hill music underneath it you know like hey spotify we've got a dust email account you know what i mean like give it a bit of a bounce well let's see if we can do that shall we all right um you keep talking while i do the tech all right all right it's fine um i'll try and remember all the things that i'm supposed to do um first thing follow us that's the thing do that that means every week magic little emo dad emo dad podcast is going to turn up in your newsfeed rate <laughs> us for 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 more than four less than six do that and follow us in dad podcast at instagram.com send matt some abuse he loves it um tell all your friends that's the thing this week speak to your friend who loves emo and tell them and you can tell them by buying an emo dad t-shirt that's right we've got a merchandise thing where are you, you getting into this now <laughs> i am loving it t-shirts out a beach towel and socks and other random things that james set up when he was bored um tip jar buy us a, a, a hoodie we still haven't got enough for the hoodie I'll take a pound or two pounds. Please go with your hoodie. Um, you can even send us an email. We have an email account. Email at podcast.gmail.com. Um, send us an email. I think this song just goes on forever. No, it ended like just as you said that. That was perfect. Did I do it? I did it. Fucking first take wonder, motherfucker. Just for future reference, that song is one minute and two seconds long. Yeah, that's going to mean that I've got to get that. I did. Oh, wow. All right. Did I forget anything? I'm going to be perfectly honest. I wasn't listening. listening. Discord. (laughs) We've got a Discord. Uh, Go to the Discord. Meet some friends. Say some things. I've accidentally pressed on a different thing now. Go to the Discord. The Discord is a magical fantasy place where you can chat with friends online. And pick an avatar. Pretend to be somebody else. Make a new friend. I'm going to keep talking in this strange voice while things happen. I'm going to stop that. Okay, uh, nice. This this like playlist I've yeah. stumbled on, it goes yeah. Pretty Little Liars. It's a yeah. TV themes playlist. Pretty Little Liars, Sons of Anarchy, yeah. Benny Hill, sure. Daredevil, Jessica Jones. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's happening, but I'm into it. Right, let's end with a Greg, a Greg song. Um, okay. I've just got to get away from the Benny Hill album. Uh, what should we? What What didn't we play? Um, we didn't play Boys ben on the Street. No, we didn't. We played Rancid that. instead. Yeah, because. <laughs> That's the way we roll. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, thanks again to Greg. Uh, it was a great time. We really enjoyed chatting. And this is Boys in the Street. I thought I always thought it was called Boys on the Street. It's called Boys in the Street. Well, shows what I know. Um, Boys in the Street by Greg Holden. Enjoy. <laughs>